Good morning, church. We are in a series in the New Testament book of First Peter, as you just heard. The title of the series is Hardships, Holiness, and Hope. This book is written by one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his disciples. Peter himself wrote this letter, and he's writing to Christians in the first century who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire for their faith. They've been, they're being persecuted. They're having to leave their homes and they're scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. Things are really hard for them. They're struggling with feeling alienated from society. They're discouraged by the attacks on their faith. Their unity is being threatened as a people. And they're fearful of, of what is yet to come. Can anyone relate to any of those things? And so Peter is writing to encourage them in their faith. How does he do that? Not by giving them any spectacular news, anything they've never heard. No, he does that by reminding them of the basics of Christianity. That's really what this letter gives us. It's the basics, and he mentions the word God, the gospel and the message of the gospel over and over again. And he's telling them, listen, I want to show you how the gospel transforms your life now and forever. And by doing so, Peter's confident these Christians, if they understand what he's saying and believe it and live it out, that they will endure hardships, even unjust ones. That they will keep pursuing holiness Allowing Christ to, to form, to spiritually form them in his, in his image. And he knows it will all be possible because he keeps coming back to the theme that they have a living hope in Jesus Christ. A living hope. Today, unity, blessing, and suffering with hope. Peter just finished a major section in this letter where he, the main teaching was on submission. And how, to submit, how do we submit in various relationships within society? And now Peter sort of transitions to a new section where he focuses on primarily on suffering. And the question is, how do we persevere when we experience suffering for being a Christian? How do we persevere? How do we press on? How do we continue on? How do we not give up when we experience suffering for being a Christian? And interestingly enough, the way Peter addresses that question is he starts with how we treat one another. That's our first lesson. Be a people united in humility, sympathy, and love. I could say it stronger, seek unity in humility, sympathy, and love. But I want it to be a corporate, a collective, be a people. Notice what uh, Peter says in verse 8. Finally, all of you, by the way, this should show you that from the very beginning, preachers say finally, but they don't really mean finally. You see, he's in the middle of his, 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 his letter here. So when I say finally, I might be on you know, point number two of five. Uh, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. All of you. He was talking to certain groups in society first. Now he's talking to all believers, all of you. He says, have unity of mind. Which means, pursue unity. 
The word literally means think harmoniously. When we, when we use the word harmony, right, when we sing songs, when our choir is up here, when you, maybe when you're singing out there, we don't just sing the melody, which is kind of the main part, the main uh, sound of the song. We also have harmony. And you could be like, well, they're singing different notes. That's, that's wrong. No, the melody and the harmony singing in all four parts together, they're singing the same song. Yes, different notes, but the same song. And together it produces a more beautiful unity, does it not? He doesn't, he's not saying every one of you have the same exact thoughts. No, you can have different thoughts, but they have to be able to weave together in a beautiful harmony, in a beautiful unity. And the fact that Peter commands us this shows us it doesn't come naturally. That should make sense, right? Any group of people, but it's certainly any New Testament church, a healthy church, has people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different cultures, different uh, socioeconomic status. And this means different preferences and desires. That's because the church is not an affinity club. We say this a lot, don't you? You hear us say it a lot, right? An affinity club is a gathering of people, and there's nothing wrong with these, is a gathering of people that are united or, or come together around something that they have in common, right? If you're part of a, a shooting club and you're, you're united around that, great. Part of a golf club, whatever it is, chess club, that's great. You have something in common. That's not the church. We don't come together because we have some, some interest in common. We come together because of the blood of Jesus has torn down the walls and made us brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you have differences like we do, it creates tension. It's natural. We shouldn't be surprised by this. That's why so much of the New Testament teaching focuses on unity in the midst of diversity. Jesus never envisioned a church where everyone thought the same thing about everything. You know what that's called? As one, as one pastor aptly said it, a place where everyone thinks alike on every issue is called a cult. But a church is a group of people with a diversity of thoughts and perspective on all kinds of issues who find their unity in the gospel, who find their unity in a doctrine that they all agree on and say, this is so important and our unity in Christ is so important, it far outweighs anything that would divide us. And that's our vision for Grace Baptist Church. A church where people who are white, black, brown skin color can live together in harmony. A church where people who are Republican or Democrat or Independent can accept one another and love one another even if they disagree with one another. A church that we can talk about the issues around COVID and mass and, and while acknowledging that brilliant people on both sides disagree with each other. Listen, we already do this in so many ways. This is Redskins country, isn't it? Sorry. This is Washington football team country, isn't it? And yet you have welcomed me into your fold <laughs> as a loyal Ravens fan. Amen. You already do this. We got to keep doing it. That's why Peter tells us not just have unity of mind, but notice at the end of verse 8, a humble mind. It's bookend by our, 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 how we think about each other. As Christians, we should be the first to admit we don't have it all figured out. I could be wrong for being a Ravens fan. 
We are not sovereign. God is. That's the point. And so we can listen and we can learn from each other. How do we cultivate a unity of mind with humility? It's almost like Peter knows that. He says, by showing sympathy. Sympathy. Sympathy means feeling something alongside somebody else. Sympathos. Pathos, a passion, and coming alongside. Sim, feeling it with them. Trying to enter their pain with them. Trying to understand their heart. Do you see why that's so important? When you are sympathetic with your fellow Christians, a difference in perspective will not lead you to shun them or reject them. It should lead you to ask, do I really understand their perspective? Can I feel the pain or struggle that leads them to make that conclusion or to make that decision? Can I see the truth in what they're believing or any truth in what they're believing? I hope you can see the relevance that this 2,000-year-old teaching has on our current cultural and political climate. You might think someone is dead wrong about their political views. Fine. But have you even asked them why they hold that view? Are you willing to listen even if it's hard or messy? It doesn't mean you agree with them. No, you can still disagree passionately, but it does mean you obey the Bible and behave like a Christian by showing sympathy. He also says tender heart. Have a tender heart. It means compassion not just in your actions, but in your feelings. The Bible commands our feelings. You're like, I can't, I, you, you can tell me to think a certain way, but you can't tell me to feel a certain way. Yes, he can if he is Lord over all. He can tell you even how to feel. And right at the center of those virtues, really at the center of this verse and this lesson is brotherly love. A love that views each other as family. A love that means you care so deeply about one another, you're willing to accept differences in perspective because your love for them is greater than your love for your own position. Peter's point is that our witness for the gospel will be based on how we live this out. His main point is, how do you live as a Christian in a society where you're meant to show the, 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 the glory of God on display in your life so that they might ask you for the hope that lies within you? That's his point. We have an election in, a, in just a few weeks. And it's an important one. Please hear me. Most people don't... Well, how you vote is important. Do you hear that? Do you hear me saying that? How you vote is important. You're making a decision about who's going to lead on various levels. So choose your representatives wisely, prayerfully, and humbly. But I implore you, resist demonizing people on the other side. If you can't fathom how someone could vote for the other guy, that means you don't have deep enough relationships with people who are different than you. And you need to. And you need to ask them. How you vote is important, but how you treat people who vote differently than you is just as important, if not more. People are always, ask, are always wondering as pastors, where do we stand on these issues? And sometimes I, I've, we've heard that people interpret where we stand based on how we pray on Sunday mornings. Do you realize we intentionally pray for a myriad of issues in our culture, in our society, on purpose? It doesn't mean we're right or left. 
Now, personally, I have views about these issues, and I am passionate about those views. But listen, my calling as a pastor is not to tell you who to vote for. My primary calling as a pastor really has more to do with teaching you how to treat one another on November 4th more than it does with who you vote for on November the 3rd. I know what God is calling us to isn't easy. If it were, there would be a lot of groups around the world who have the same kind of diversity. There, are, there isn't. It's too hard. Too much effort. Just give me somebody who wants to play golf and that's all I need. But give me someone who's radically different in any other way other than the fact that we both say Jesus Christ is Lord and now that woman, that man is my brother and sister in Christ. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's really hard to have deep convictions and strong passions about really important issues and then have to be around people who are different and yet that's exactly why Jesus came to die. To gather and unite the people by his blood tearing down the dividing walls between us. So let me ask you, is the body of Christ and the message of the gospel worth all the sacrifice and pain of seeking unity? Please don't hear me. We don't sacrifice truth, but we bear with one another in truth. Why is Peter even talking about unity? His main point here is suffering. But the reason why he's talking about unity, the reason why he brings it up at the beginning of this discussion is because he knows life is hard. And when we are suffering, one of the greatest temptations in our lives is to lash out at people who are around us, who are closest to us. And Peter says, I want to guard your hearts against doing that. Don't do it. We need each other. There is a power in unity among those who are suffering. Don't you realize anyone who's been oppressors in history, they realize it. The Nazis, when they put Jews in concentration camps, they wouldn't let them speak to each other and and fraternize and build a relationship. Why? Because they knew if they could find some kind of relationship, some kind of bond, it would help them endure. But the Nazis were there to crush them, not to help them endure. But the Jews wouldn't let it happen, would they? They found ways to connect and strengthen each other. They knew that a camaraderie would strengthen them against against their real enemy. How do you see people? Or let me ask you, how do people see you? As someone who is primarily concerned about being right or someone whose whose passion for truth is only surpassed by your passion for unity in Christ? Lesson number two. Keep trusting God by not returning evil for evil, but bless others. That's verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter repeatedly goes back to this theme in his letter that we are to uh, follow the way of Jesus who did not return evil for evil. Why did Jesus live like that? Because he fully trusted his Father. He never had to take matters into his own hands because he was convinced all matters were in the sovereign hands of his heavenly Father. We are called to bless those who do evil against us. Jesus said it in Luke 6, 27. Love your enemies. We did a whole series on this two summers ago. Love your enemies. Do good to those who harm you. Bless those who accuse you and pray for those who persecute you. Why should we do this? Because we're called to imitate the very character of God himself. 
Doesn't God allow it to rain on the just and the unjust? Doesn't he? Don't, don't, aren't there people who do well in life who are both really, really good in some people's eyes and really, really bad? God shows his goodness to, to those who don't deserve it. And his point is, so should we. Listen, the ultimate demonstration of this is the death of Jesus. Did Jesus die for the righteous? I'll try again. Did Jesus die for the righteous? No. That's verse 18. It's not in our passage, but chapter 3, one more verse over after our passage. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He showed us goodness to those who don't deserve it. Why? Because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And it might be our kindness when we are called to do good, even those who might seek to do us harm, it's a call to represent Christ to them so that hopefully, by God's grace, he would chip away at their heart and heart by using our kindness to do it, and they might come to us or someone and say, please tell me the reason for the hope that lies within you, because that's not normal. In other words, one of the reasons why we bless those who mistreat us now is because we care about their eternal destiny. Do I want to change someone's mind now? Do I want to crush someone now in, my, in the way I argue with them? Or do I want to see them in heaven forever? Maybe that should inform how we interact with those who disagree with us and even may say negative things about us. Notice Peter doesn't just say, don't curse them. It's not a call, a, a call to stop doing something. It's a call to actively do something. We are called to bless them to actively offer a blessing, to seek someone's ultimate good, to show kindness. And notice what Peter says in, in verse 9 and in verse 14. As we live counterculturally, as we bless those who would curse us, he says, we are blessed. We obtain a blessing. We will be blessed. What does that mean? Does bless, you know, is it hashtag blessed when everything's going well in life? Right? You find a parking spot near to the grocery store. I almost said mall, but nobody goes to the mall anymore. So you find a parking spot near to the grocery store, blessed. Nobody is in line at a Walmart checkout, that's blessed. <laughs> now, what does that mean? Does it mean God will give us more stuff? Does it mean life will go better? It's obvious from Peter's writing that's not what it means. What is the blessing we get? It's the blessing of a deeper intimacy with God. That's what it is. How do I know? Because Peter then quotes in verse 10, 11, and 12, he quotes Psalm 34. He says, as we keep our tongue from evil, as we seek peace and do good to those who harm us, verse 12, he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. God's eyes are on you. His ears are attentive to you. What does that mean? We know God is always watching. He's always listening. What does it mean then for, for the psalmist to draw this out? It, to have his eyes on us means he's actively, actively working to sustain us with his grace and his love. To have his ears open means he, he is ready. He is ready and, and he stands ready to give us everything we need to live righteous lives. The blessing we get for, by not returning evil for evil, but blessing others, is a deeper experience of Jesus in our lives. It's a greater sense, uh, verse 12 here, of his favor and his delight. 
Listen, when, I'm, when, my, when one of my children wants to talk to me and wants me to listen, it's, I want to show them that I'm listening, I'm actively engaged. And it's hard because i got a lot of other things going on. But when I stop everything, I want to show them, you're important to me. You're valuable to me. Whatever you're saying or whatever you want to tell me, it's important to me. Do you want to know Christ more intimately? Paul says in Philippians 3, here's how you can do it. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. The blessing we get from trusting God in the midst of our suffering is a deeper experience of Christ himself. And I would never have designed it that way if it were up to me, but God in his sovereign grace and mercy has shown us that as a, the poem I've quoted before in the past about the thorn, when he gives us a, a thorn and we think this is the worst gift ever, this is the worst thing ever, it's painful. Why would you give me a thorn as your greatest gift? And we realize that he uses that thorn to pin the veil that hides his face. In other words, in other words we see him more intimately because of the suffering in our lives. We experience him in a way we never could without it. Keep trusting God, but not returning evil for evil, but bless others. Lesson number three, live out your faith and prepare to suffer. This is not some abstract possibility, Christian. Suffering should not be to you some abstract possibility. Verse nine says it will suffer. To this you were called, he said. Verse 17, sometimes it is God's will that you should suffer for doing good. I know it's hard for us Westerners to hear that. Many of us have grown accustomed to live a life of comfort and ease. And Peter says, wake up, Christian. Prepare yourself. You will suffer for being a Christian. Pastor Brady said this a couple weeks ago. If you've never experienced any kind of hardship, any kind of uh, pain for being a Christian, you need to ask yourself, does anyone even know I'm a Christian? And then, am I even living like a Christian? I'm not saying be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. I'm talking about when you live out your faith, you're going to go against the way of the world in so many ways. You can do everything good, Peter's saying, and still suffer. This flies against anything you'll hear on TBN this morning from prosperity preachers. Jesus did everything right in life, didn't he? And what happened to our Savior? He suffered. And Peter says, and so will you. Parents, we must teach our children that following Jesus will come with a cost. We must prepare them to expect suffering. Otherwise, we are setting our children up for failure if they think that following Jesus means a life that means life will go better for them, that they'll get uh, the job of their dreams, they'll find that perfect, perfect person, they'll live happily ever after. No. Because then suffering happens. If they're, if they're told a lie about Christianity like that and they start to follow Jesus because they think, yeah, I want to go to heaven, but I also want life to be better now. And then they start following Jesus and they realize, oh no, I don't get the job of my, that I thought I, I wanted. I don't find the person in my dreams. Uh, that person might leave me or, or I get sick or something. And then the house of cards that I built their life on comes crumbling down and they think, I'm rejecting Christianity. No, they're not. They're rejecting some, some prostituted version of Christianity, not real Christianity. Christianity. And the, and the quicker they can get rid of that, the better. 
so they can come to Jesus and find, you want to know what real joy is? It's actually laying down your life and following me. You want to find real life? Stop trying to grasp your life, but lay it over to me. I know it sounds countercultural. Some Christians, some people are not Christians. They hear that and think that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then you, and then they do it and realize Jesus is better than life itself. And when I live for Jesus, I find I'm living, I'm actually experiencing real life. I'm fully alive. We all need to understand that following Jesus does not mean a life of ease and doesn't mean a life of misery either. Paul says, ever sorrowing yet ever rejoicing. A life where, as Peter quotes here in verse 10, where we can see good days. Listen, if you see good days, thank God for it. That's a gift. But you will also experience very dark days. And yet we can still trust God and follow Him. How do we do it? How do we live out our faith and prepare to suffer? Three Three things that Peter draws out here. First, we do good. Verse 13, be zealous for doing good. Zealous, eager. Verse 16 talks about good behavior. Verse 17, suffer for doing good. Peter's point is clear. We live out our faith and we show our faith by doing good. We know what Peter's not saying. He's not saying we do good as a way of earning our salvation. He's not saying at the end of your life, if your good outweighs your bad, then God will let you into heaven. He'll accept you. We know he's not saying that. Because he said right up front in the very opening words of this letter that we are born again. We are forgiven by faith in the resurrected Jesus. We are granted or gifted eternal life and eternal inheritance that cannot be earned and therefore cannot be rescinded. God has graciously, Peter says, rescued us from the domain of darkness or sin and brought us into his marvelous light, his holiness. Make no mistake, salvation from sin, adoption into God's family, and imperishable inheritance, it's all received by grace. It's all a gift, no merit. And now, Peter's point here in chapter 3 is, now that we are his beloved children, now that the Spirit of God is living in us, God calls us to be like Jesus. To be zealous for good works, just like Jesus was. Show the life-transforming work of God in your life. Show it to be real. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons I love this church is because of how committed you are to not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. So many of you are zealous for good works. I've seen it firsthand in my own transition to a new home a few weeks ago. We've had dozens and dozens of church members working at our house. There's cars lined up all around our street and all behind in the cul-de-sac, fixing things, uh, b- pulling weeds out, building things. It's been amazing. And I'm not the only one. I was, uh, I was outside with my neighbor the other day. I was getting to meet her for the first time. And they were like, yeah, you've had a lot of people. There was like a whole army at your house. What was going on? And I got to brag on my church and be like, yeah, those are all my fellow church members. And they're like, oh, what church is that? And I loved it. And I was like, listen, I'm, I'm, it's not because I'm a pastor. I've seen our church members do it for each other all the time. It's just what they do. 
We have people who make meals at a moment's notice. You need a meal? We're going to send an email out and expect next week meals to start coming because there's a real need and we got people who can meet that need. You need a car? We'll, have, we'll call someone and they'll donate a car. That's happened half a dozen times. We, you need repairs on your house, on your whatever it is, we can help. We need, you need a listening ear? You don't need physical? You need something emotional, relational? Yeah, I'm going to make time for you. I love it. Keep it up, church. It's making a difference. Yesterday, a church member sent me a text of a card that she got in the mail from her neighbor. Her neighbor is Joan. I would like you to pray for Joan. Joan has stage four cancer and is on hospice. And one of our members took Joan a basket when we did Grace Gives Saturday a couple weeks ago. And she made her, actually made, she made her a couple baskets and gave, her, gave this to her neighbor. And in that card, Joan said to the church member and to Grace Baptist Church, thank you, thank you, thank you. The baskets you put together for me were absolutely perfect. It's hard to express how much something like this means to me, not just the stuff, but the love and hope and prayers behind it. It really does boost my lagging spirit. Don't it's making a difference. That's the point. It makes a difference. I don't care if it's a tiny basket with five things in it. I don't care if you're just listening for 10 minutes. I don't care if you're pulling out weeds or you're building a bathroom. It makes a difference. Keep doing good as a reflection of Christ. Number two, honor Christ. How do we live out our faith and prepare to suffer, do good? And then secondly, Peter says, honor Christ. He says, honor Christ the Lord as holy, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ. Peter knows that when you do good to your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, you will likely suffer for righteousness' sake. Some of, some of your friends or, or family members or coworkers may not appreciate that you volunteer at a pregnancy clinic, but that you would never support Planned Parenthood. Some of you, your friends or family members may misunderstand why you wouldn't bash your boss like they do. Some of you are, are labeled by your family members uh, a goody two-shoes or something else to kind of discredit you because you're so weird. My best friend, I told you this before, my best friend is a brilliant engineer. And his boss told him years later, after having spiritual conversations, if I'd have known you were one of those kind of Christians, like evangelical, Bible-believing, I would have never hired you. And now they're, now they're like this. Now he's been able to influence his boss. But there was a time where his boss was like, that would have dis disgusted me. I mean, we're talking about D.C., right? Not in the middle of somewhere. D.C. And for many around the world, the stakes are much higher. Taking a stand for Christ doesn't just mean you might not get a job or you might lose a relationship. It, it might mean imprisonment or death. Peter says, have no fear of them. What? Don't be troubled by it, verse 14. What? Why? How can I not be afraid that, 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 that I might be persecuted, even killed? Why? Because he says God is for you. He is with you, Christian. He gives you a promise. You will be blessed. Who can harm us if we have God's greatest blessing upon us? This is sort of like Paul saying in, in 2 Corinthians 4, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a, an eternal weight of glory that far exceeds our troubles. Listen, listen to me, Christian. 
the worst thing that could happen to you ever is for you to lose God's love. Do you realize that? The worst thing that could ever happen to you is for God to utterly forsake you. And I'm here to tell you, Christian, the worst thing that could ever happen to you can never happen to you because of Jesus. The worst thing that could happen to you that, you, that God forsakes you, that God turns his love away from you, can never happen to you because it happened to Jesus on the cross. That's why we don't have to fear unjust suffering or be troubled by difficult circumstances because we know Jesus took all of that so that now in Christ, with him, we can have fearless assurance and hope that our Father will always love us, will always be with us, and no matter what the worst that the world can do to us, which is death, it just ushers us into never-ending joy and peace and glory. I've said this to you before. The first moment in heaven will far exceed a hundred years of misery here. Your first moment of heaven, the first taste, the first sip on your lips will make everything feel like a shadow, like in Narnia, right? When they were in there for many, many years and they had this memory. You remember when? Honor Christ the Lord, he says, as holy. Stand in awe of his lordship. Over the entire universe, bow before sovereignty. Gaze at the majesty in creation and then realize there's infinitely greater majesty in his very being. The more you honor Christ the Lord as holy, the more you fear the one who is worthy, the more you will not fear man or the suffering that comes by living out your faith. And finally, share hope. Share hope. He says, be ready to give a defense that word offense is, a, is the word we get for apologetics, apologia. A defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Peter's point is that as we go through suffering with an unshakable hope and even a sense of joy, people will be curious and ask about it. And that's our chance to point them to Jesus. Are you living this way? When is the last time someone asked you for the reason for your hope in the midst of your suffering? When is the last time someone asked you, how could you be so, whatever it is, forgiving, patient, generous? Again, if nobody's asking, you might need to assess how you're living. Listen, your walk is, with Christ is personal, but it's not private. It was never meant to be. If no one knows you're a Christian, you're not living like a Christian. On the flip side, would you be ready to share when someone asks you about your hope? Would you know what you would say? Would you have the courage to share the good news about Jesus, his death and resurrection? Would you be able to do that? Peter says, always be what? Prepared. Prepared. It's not optional. This is for every Christian. So whether you got trained with EE or Evangicube or four spiritual laws or becoming a contagious Christian, it's fine. Whatever it is, just be ready to have spiritual conversations and be ready to share the gospel of hope. If you're not ready, come talk to one of the pastors. We'll, we'll get you equipped. We have resources. We've, got, we've done training in the past. We'll do more training. You don't have to be an evangelist to do the work of evangelism. But there's a caveat. Peter says, oh, and by the way, he knows. He knows our tendencies. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
Oh, he got me. I want to shove it down their throat. You can have all the right answers. But if your words come across demeaning or angry or or self-righteous, then you have forfeited your witness for Christ. We as a church are committed to evangelism. Each person we meet, each person you meet, will live forever. You know that, right? They will live forever in unending joy in heaven with the Lord or eternal punishment in hell for their own sin. We know that Jesus wants each person to repent and turn to him and be saved. Will you be his mouthpiece? Do you believe that? Do you believe like Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Can you say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Grace, we, we cannot seek unity. We cannot, seek, uh, God, we cannot experience God's blessing. We cannot suffer with hope unless our lives are centered on the gospel. The gospel is our one message. We are going to stay on message. We're going to stay on mission because it's what unifies us. It's what keeps us following Christ. The gospel is the greatest blessing. We're his beloved children. The gospel empowers us to live out our faith even if we suffer. The gospel is good news. Is your life centered on the gospel? That Jesus lived the life you should have lived as the God-man. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead victorious. He reigns now as our conquering king and as your great high priest. He indwells you by his Holy Spirit. That's the gospel message for all those who will turn from sin and believe believe in Christ, you receive him and enter into his family forever. If you believe that, you can do everything we've called you to do this morning. If you don't believe that, today's the day of salvation. You want to see good days? You want to understand what it means to experience the greatest peace that the world could ever give? A peace greater than whatever happens in, on November the 3rd or whatever happens or whatever you think is going to happen? No, there's a peace far greater, far better, and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us. That's my prayer this morning. Help us. Help us to be unified, to actively seek unity in truth, but also in grace. Help us to bless and not return evil for evil, whether it's to each other or to the world, whether it's on social media or in our personal lives. Lord, help us to prepare for suffering right now. Help us to live out our faith. May our faith be on display. We know we're not perfect, Lord. I would love for people to ask, why are you so generous? Why are you so loving? But they might also ask, why are you a hypocrite? Why did you just fail when you said you followed Jesus? Lord, maybe even those are opportunities for us to admit Jesus doesn't save us because we were good enough, but because we were messed up enough and we knew it. Lord, I pray for those who this morning, right now, who are listening, whether in person here or online, who have not received Jesus as Savior, who have not followed him by faith, They've heard the good news. Maybe their parents believe it. Maybe they've been to church for a while. But Father, I pray that today you would help them to turn from sin and cry out to you for salvation and say, Jesus, I ask that you be my Savior. I want to follow you as my Lord. That today would be the day of salvation. For our church, that we would be equipped for every good work. We honor you, Christ Jesus, as Lord.
We honor you as holy. Do in us what we could never do as we live as shining lights for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.